ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, (laughs) you you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. You're listening to the LRB Podcast. I'm Malin Hay. My guest this week is B. Wilson, a frequent contributor to the LRB, whose subjects have included curry, a talking mongoose, palm oil, poison pen letters and Maria Montessori. Today, though, we'll be talking about Paul Newman. B. has written a piece in the latest issue about the actor, director, racing car driver and salad dressing philanthropist, who starred in Cool Hand Luke, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and The Hustler, as well as in 10 films with his wife, the actress Joanne Woodward. B's piece is a review of a new biography, Paul Newman, The Extraordinary Life of an Ordinary Man, edited by David Rosenthal, as well as The Last Movie Stars, a six-part documentary series directed by Ethan Hawke, which examines Newman and Woodward's relationship. So B, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I'll just start by asking you about this book title, The Extraordinary Life of an Ordinary Man. Do you think that's a fair assessment of Paul Newman's life? What what was ordinary about him and what was extraordinary about his life? In a way, I think the thing about that title is it's one of the most cliched titles I can imagine for someone's memoir. And actually, the memoir is far more interesting than you'd imagine from that. Um, But in a way, yes, it completely fits in that, I mean, you look up Paul Newman on IMDb, he starred in or was appearing as voiceover in 85 movies. He also directed, I think, maybe six. I think it describes him as something like screen legend and owner of the most famous pair of blue eyes in Hollywood or in film history. Um, That's pretty extraordinary. And he also produced some films and he was a car racer and a salad dressing entrepreneur. I mean, (laughs) you almost can't get more extraordinary or strange than that. And yet he was brought up in the suburbs in Ohio and could have just gone into the family business running his father's sporting goods store. So yeah, the title, I think maybe they could have tried a bit harder on that one because as I say, I mean, I found the book and the documentary, which is we're going to get to, which is another thing that came out of the same source material, scintillating and I don't think the title really does it justice. You mentioned the source material, the circumstances under which the biography got published. 
And also the circumstances under which this documentary got made were quite unusual, weren't they? They were, yeah. So back in the 80s, I think it was 1985, Paul Newman suddenly decided, and his family said they were very surprised at the time because in some ways he was deeply private, had a very ambivalent relationship with being famous, being a star. He suddenly decided that, as he put it, for the sake of his offspring, he was going to create a kind of record, complete warts and all account of his life. And he not only did hour upon hour of interviews with his friend Stuart Stern, who was a screenwriter, but a really good family friend. But he also requested honest interviews with many of the people he'd worked with, the directors of his films, his ex-wife Jackie, his current wife Joanne Woodward. And he and Stern worked on this project for like six years, 1985 to 1991. They produced thousands and thousands and thousands of pages. And then he decided, no, I hate this, and requested that all of the recordings be burnt. But it turned out after his death, which was much, much later, that although the tapes had been burnt, the transcripts hadn't. And so his children, he had six children, five surviving children, one of them very sadly died young, his children thought, we have to do something with this. So what they did was commissioned the memoir to be pieced together. It's been done really well, in my opinion, by David Rosenthal, who's mostly worked in the past as a publisher and a journalist. And the act of winnowing down thousands and thousands of pages to what's quite a short and snappy book, I think he's done it really well. And then the second project, which is much lengthier, is a six-part documentary directed by the actor Ethan Hawke called The Last Movie Stars. And there, because he didn't have the recordings, he had the idea of selecting a series of Hollywood A-listers ranging from George Clooney, who plays the part of Paul Newman, to Laura Linney, who plays the part of Joanne Woodward, which is very appropriate because she was one of the talented actors who was mentored by Joanne Woodward late in her life. So the transcripts kind of come to life and then they're intercut with loads and loads of original, very glamorous footage of Newman and Woodward. And, yeah, we're going to discuss the documentary more in a moment, aren't we? Because I know you have very mixed feelings about it mm. and I I can't really defend it, but I just <laughs> loved it. I just enjoyed it so much. Yeah, I think we'll get on to the documentary in a minute. But just to, to think about the book for a minute, it's a pretty unusual project, this idea of a kind of oral history biography where he's interviewing all of these people involved in his life. Do you think it works? Do you think it's a kind of authentic account of Newman's life like he intended or does it turn into something different? I mean, what's impossible to know is how it differs from the experience of reading all of the thousands of pages. I mean, it's an incredible act of editing. I think that what's presented here works extremely well and I found it to be amazingly thematically consistent from the very first few pages, we're presented in Newman's own account with the story of a boy who was forced to be a decorative object for his own mother and that this played out for the rest of his life in ways that meant he was, as he described it, emotionally anaesthetised and that weirdly, this made him an absolutely brilliant film star. I mean, the devastatingly good looks helped. But it's, I mean, I, I'm terrible at titles, but I would have more almost more called it there's some snappy way to say like how weird it is to be a film star that's not good that's not a good title is it but it's more the weirdness of Paul Newman 
would be a better title than the, maybe, I don't know, maybe The Extraordinary Life of an Ordinary Man is trying to do the same thing. It's actually very interesting that you use the word weirdness, because in a way, one of the things that I think stood out to me about your piece is how you sort of skewer the way that he is very unweird and how how passive and how kind of still he is in so many of his his pictures. And, um, you know, actually that that title, The Extraordinary Life of an Ordinary Man, to me is 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 another way of expressing passivity because it's almost saying, look at these crazy things that happened to me and I just sort of sat there and took it. But why do you think that, and in fact you actually mentioned that in the film Cool Hand Luke, Newman's character sort of triumphs through this exercise of what you call a smirking and childish passivity. Why do you think that passivity is such a big part of Newman's appeal? Or in fact, do you think that he is at his best when he's being passive? I certainly think it's a huge part of his appeal. I mean, when I had watched a few Newman films before I began writing the piece, then when I was sent the book, I went back and rewatched things. I thought Cool Hand Luke was amazing on rewatching it. It's probably my favourite Newman film, along with The Verdict, which is a 1980s film directed by Sidney Lumet. But the thing that really, really struck me in Cool Hand Luke and also in The Hustler and also in many of his early films, which are lesser known, is that he's really hardly moving. And I begin the piece with this quote from Cat on a Hot Tin Roof in which he co-stars with Elizabeth Taylor. I mean, you can't avoid staring at him. And he's playing someone who's he's meant to have been a former athlete who's injured and he's so upset about that that all he can do is just drink loads and loads of bourbon. And he's very handsome, as he always is. But I was just staring at him and staring at him and just waiting for his eyes to move. And I couldn't see the move once. I mean, maybe if I watched it again, they do. And then I just suddenly thought he's like a kind of living statue. He's just sort of offering himself up to us. And in The Hustler, again, I mean, he's blind drunk for half of that film and he's falling over drunk. And sort of, I mean, that film is often billed as one of the great sports movies of all time. And I was watching it thinking, this is just bizarre because he's meant to be playing pool, but he's mostly just getting so drunk he falls over. (laughs) And then in Cool Hand Luke, I think the kind of being supine, being passive, falling over thing, it works perfectly because in that, I think he's really a kind of secular Christ figure. And I think he's really, really well directed and really well cast. And he does move his eyes a bit and he's able to bring a bit more humour into that role. And in that part, he's playing a prisoner who tries to rebel against the authorities. But mostly the forms his rebellion takes is kind of just not doing anything. And in this famous, famous scene involving hard-boiled eggs, he accepts this bet. I can't now remember. Can you remember how many hard-boiled eggs? Uh, 50, I think. 50. Yeah. He has to eat 50 hard-boiled eggs in a certain amount of time. And people say it can't be done. And by the end, he's just lying over backwards with his head lolling backwards. He's kind of unconscious and people are just stuffing eggs into (laughs) his mouth. And it's simultaneously really compelling and disgusting and sort of scintillating and manly. And it's very strange and fantastic. But yes, I just was struck that he is so often kind of motionless. And it's really hard to say with film stars to what extent that's a choice he's making himself or to what extent the directors are just wanting him to do that. But that's where I thought the memoir was really insightful, actually, because again and again, he's describing himself 
as someone who's wanting to act and wanting to project emotions and he simply can't find the emotions that he would need in order to be able to connect with an audience. And yet to be a film actor, that doesn't seem to matter. That's really interesting. Do you think that there might be a historical almost context of the extreme passivity of this persona? I mean, Newman got big quite soon after the Second World War. If I think about some of his contemporaries like Steve McQueen, there's maybe a similar type of sort of slightly laconic withdrawal, somebody like Jack Nicholson in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest as well, a bit later. I'm wondering if you think that there are kind of political or historical reasons why that type of very cool figure is appealing at this time. Yes, I actually do think that he fits into that 1950s, 1960s reaction against active heroism. And I mean, the thing that kept coming into my mind as I was reading the book and watching the documentary was Mad Men. Mm. And in a way, I feel he's a kind of Don Draper figure because Mm. he's being admired for wearing a suit, looking great and drinking an insane amount. Mm. But just having seen Mad Men to go back and see the non-ironic version it's quite hard to take at face value. You're kind of thinking in some of the films, I strongly felt this in The Hustler, like what are we being asked to admire here? I mean, the beauty is still incredibly easy to admire, but the rest of the value system that goes with it is quite strange. But he clearly found it quite strange himself. So tell me a little bit about Newman's relationship with Joanne Woodward and what it did to their respective careers. So the interesting thing is he credited her with everything. He said she turned him into a sexual being on screen and in life. And he consistently said she was a much better actor than him, which in a way she absolutely is. And he directed her in a project, Rachel Rachel. All of their children, the ones that feature in the the memoir and documentary, concur that it was just sort of accepted in the family that she was the one that was really good at acting. And yet he was the star. And there's a moment in the Ethan Hawke documentary where Ethan Hawke says something like, many of us lose our dreams, but most of us don't have a partner who had the exact same dreams and actually gets to live them. But the Joanne Woodward relationship is really the defining lens for the six-part documentary because the title, The Last Movie Stars, it comes from their friend Gore Vidal who said they presided over the the last era when movies were the dominant art form in America. And he says they're the last people who at the beginning of their career were treated as, I think it's Catherine Hepburn and Gary Cooper would have been. I don't fully accept that diagnosis that they are the last movie stars. I kind of think, what is Tom Cruise if he's not a movie star? I can't really think of a better way to describe him. Or Will Smith or Julia Roberts, or we could think of many, many other names. But there is something really distinctive about the fact that they starred in so many films together and they were famous for such a long period of time. But the thing that I felt the Hawk documentary, I mean, it partly addresses and partly glosses over is that it's really the last movie's star. I mean, that somehow Joanne Woodward, even though she is fantastic in the films that I've gone back and rewatched, she's wonderful. She's got range. She's got humour. All of the people interviewed in the book who describe her say she just had this amazing presence on stage. 
it somehow doesn't translate into pure stardom, whatever that is. And there was this quote from one of the people who directed him and something, I'm trying to remember what they directed him in. And they said, being a star isn't really about acting at all. It's about two things, danger and sex appeal. Mm. And that Paul Newman had both of those. That's really interesting. I find that comment by Ethan Hawke really interesting, partly because it sounds incredibly personal to me. Like Ethan Hawke himself was married to Uma Thurman. I mean, I think arguably you could say that at the time she was a much more successful actor than him. And obviously their marriage eventually broke down. So maybe he was also slightly reflecting on his own on his own biography. But in, to me, that was actually what I didn't like about the Ethan Hawke documentary was that it felt too much like a, a passion project or just his his own hobbyism and rambling. Um, but I wonder whether you think that it kind of worked as a slightly more personal reflection on on stardom and Ethan Hawke potentially also thinking about his own relationship to stardom as somebody who maybe isn't quite a star on the level of a Paul Newman or a George Clooney. Yeah, I, I definitely think our knowledge that Ethan Hawke had himself been in a kind of Newman-Woodward relationship with Uma Thurman adds this extra layer to the project, doesn't it? You were, before we began talking, you were asking me, is Ethan Hawke an A-lister? Don't totally know what that means. But maybe in his own right now, I feel like he's opted out of being an A-lister, has chosen to make more independent films with people like Richard Linklater. But when he was with Uma Thurman, they were absolutely tabloid fodder, beautiful couple. And one of the many people he interviews in the documentary is his own daughter, and there's a bit where she says, Dad, you've offered me relationship advice. And one thing you said to me once was that in a relationship, there are three people. There's each of the people involved and there's a third person. And maybe that's what you should think about with Newman and Woodward. And it's kind of funny that you're just thinking there are just so many layers of meta, meta, meta-ness going on there. Yes, you didn't like it much, the documentary. No, I thought it was, I thought it was a little bit. It seemed like something that was thrown together quite hastily in 2020. So there was a lot of Zoom Zoom screens, which for me became a bit cheesy and I just felt that it was sort of slightly poorly edited. But but I think it's more interesting to me as a product of Ethan Hawke's mind, actually, than it is as a as a factual documentary about Joanne Woodward and Paul Newman, or even as a reflection on on how iconic they are, because I'm not sure that it where the book actually did convince me that Paul Newman is an icon of Hollywood. I'm not sure that the documentary convinced me of their necessity um, or of their importance, like you say, as kind of the last movie stars. I agree with you, but I think I'm a big Ethan Hawke fan because I love him in the Before Sunrise trilogy. What is it? Before Sunrise, Before Midnight, Before Sunset. And in those films, his persona is kind of a bit like how he was in the documentary, which is like... Yeah, a bit over-eager. A, a bit over-eager, a bit over-earnest, a little bit pretentious. Mm. So the documentary has all of those qualities. And I thought, great, he's being just like he is in his own movies. So I found it endearing and enjoyable. I don't know if I could actually go back to it and examine it as a work of art and say it's the best made documentary I've ever seen. It certainly isn't. But what it did do a very good job of, and I kind of agree with what you've just said, I think if I had just been shown a more polished and more sort of straightforward objective, there's no such thing as objective, is there? But documentary just re-examining the careers of Woodward and Newman, there would have been a level of me just thinking, am I that interested to see this? Whereas 
Hawke's utter devotion to the subject hooked me in. Mm. And then the footage is so good. It's so interesting. Well, I think it is just to see endless interviews with Newman and Woodward over the years on chat shows, kind of ageing in real time. And the extent to it, I thought what they did do a good job of analysing was the extent to which many of the tropes in Newman's films, especially latterly, came out of his own life, that he suffered a lot with alcohol problems himself. I mean, even at a hard drinking college, he was described as the one that drank more than anyone and ran around naked and sloshed. And he's had some weird excuse for drinking so much alcohol at one point in the book where he says, the thing is, you, it's, if you're American as opposed to British, you put all of these ice cubes in your drink and therefore you can drink them very fast. And then he said, I was always just catching up with the ice cubes. I don't quite get that as a theory of why you have to drink <laughs> a lot. But, um, but what was interesting, this, and the, the impression I come away with about Newman, which I don't think I would have got just from him, from his kind of smirking, cool, nonchalant style actually on screen is that he's really brave and he's prepared to show his flaws. And I thought that Hawke did do a good job of saying he confronts alcohol in lots of his films and the extent to which that's a problem. And he's also, I mean, this awful thing where his son Scott died and he talked about it and it he died, died of an overdose. Died of an overdose. And he talked about the extent to which it can't have helped having Paul Newman as a father and how terrible this made him feel. Well, that doesn't help, doesn't bring Scott back. But I think there's a there's an, a remarkable degree of self-reflection in him, which you wouldn't necessarily expect from a movie star. Mm. So just to go back to your point about this issue you have with the characterization of them as the last movie stars and the fact that there are probably a lot of actors who we could call movie stars who have existed since then. I mean, George Clooney, who voices Paul Newman in the documentary, is probably one of the most obvious examples. The documentary is a kind of good opportunity to think about the relationship that actors have with their forebears and this kind of slightly reverential way that they think about and talk about the matinee idols or the kind of the big silver screen stars of the 30s to 50s. What do you think of the differences between the way that actors were perceived in those days and how they're perceived now? That's a really good question. And part of what I think I loved about the Ethan Hawke documentary, maybe you didn't as much, is that it's really a work of great enthusiasm. I mean, he's a total Paul Newman fanboy. He says he himself fell in love with cinema one Sunday when instead of going to church, his dad took him to see Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And I found it endearingly just passionate and enthusiastic about its subject. And in a way, I felt it needed to be in that I think when I'd first heard that there was this six-part documentary about Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, I kind of thought, really? You know, Paul Newman, yes, because people definitely do still watch Cool Hand Luke and Hud and The Verdict and The Hustler and quite a few others. And The Sting, very much The Sting. That's great. But do they really go back and watch those Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward movies in the same way that, I mean, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, absolutely, any number of times I would watch those films. 
I know they aren't actually a romantic couple, but Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, there are many on-screen pairings of people that are just legendary that you go back to. And there's something about Newman and Woodward that isn't fully legendary as a screen pairing, but it is still really interesting that their relationship endured for such a long time. And that because of these tapes that he made from 1985 to 1991, he's so candid about what it's like to be on the inside of that relationship in which they're both navigating the bizarre world of Hollywood. So I haven't answered your question at all. It's like, how is it different being a... How does the audience react differently to them then compared to now? I'd say in some ways, there are just these kind of enduring ways in which... I mean, have we really moved beyond the era of pinups? I mean, there is just something about a film star as opposed to an actor, which is that they kind of, if you're a fan, they just do something slightly strange to you. You are either looking at that screen thinking, that's me, that's me, or you're thinking, I could be with that person, or whatever it is. (laughs) There's something slightly creepy thought going through your head. Maybe it's not even a thought. Maybe it's just a feeling. Maybe you are just staring at those dazzling blue eyes. I mean, several people, several friends I have who are sort of age, let's say, 55 and above, when I said I was writing about Paul Newman, they went all kind of fluttery (laughs) and girlish. And he said, one of the quotes in the book, that he'd read some poll in a women's magazine that he was the person that women most often abused themselves while looking at a picture of. Such a strange such a dubious honour. Such a dubious <laughs> honour. And then I thought, strange, yeah, euphemism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> self-abuse. People don't talk about self-abuse anymore, do they? No. Um, I don't know. I think I think the Hawke line is trying to say they had a mystique and some of that mystique and red carpet glamour isn't there anymore. Mm. But I don't know. It's... But to me, it seems even weirder then to choose them as an example because they did a phenomenal amount of press. Like they seem to, I mean, just based on the documentary, they seem to constantly have reporters coming over to their house to show them how they lived and, you know, talk about their relationship and stuff. So I almost wonder whether they actually ushered in a new era of kind of much more. But then I suppose excessive press has always been a constant in Hollywood, hasn't it? I mean, excessive press has always been constant, but it might be harder... In an era, I don't know, I mean, whether stars now have to be more guarded because anything can just be instantly put on social media and they can be snapped in different ways and your privacy can be invaded in a whole new set of ways because of smartphones, which wouldn't have happened before. Whereas I think you're right that there was a certain amount of them allowing the press to invade their privacy, but in a controlled way. And they clearly both really hated it a lot of the time. And who can blame them? It must have been so, so strange. But what I did find fascinating about the memoir was his argument, in a way, or revelation, that it sort of goes back to him allowing his mother to invade his privacy and gaze at him and gawp at him and turn him into an object of beauty. And he half did that because it was the only way to please her. And he half absolutely loathed it. And that was the thing that I found so psychologically interesting because in common with many readers of the LRB, I'm a huge David Thompson fan. And for years when I'd gone back to the new biographical dictionary of film, I'd noticed he's really quite harsh on Paul Newman. 
and compares him unfavorably with Brando and several other actors. But he has some brilliant line where he says there's something about his handsomeness which seems uneasy and it's almost as if he feels guilty about it. And it's such a, as with everything David Thompson writes, so perceptive because when you read the memoir, you think it isn't actually guilt, it's shame. But there clearly is something about his handsomeness that he hated. He describes it as a plague at one point. And yet he also sees that he owed everything to it. You wrote in 2007 a very well-received piece of the LRB about Nicole Kidman, which was actually a review of a David Thompson book about Nicole Kidman, where you talk about, or in fact, you talk about David Thompson talking about Nicole Kidman's bum and the attention and the kind of literal and metaphorical exposure that it's got. And you said in that piece, but it would be hypocritical to pretend that it doesn't exist or that we haven't noticed it, or that we only go to see a Nicole Kidman film to admire her beautiful mind. And I wonder if... I mean, it does seem that almost with this piece, you've slightly come full circle. And now you're thinking about the sort of curse of, of actually beauty, but from a male perspective. So I'm wondering what you think are the differences between male beauty or male objectification and female beauty and objectification in Hollywood? I mean, I more think that the difference between the subjects of those two pieces is that in the Nicole Kidman piece, I'm talking about David Thompson, talking about what it feels like to be an observer of Nicole Kidman's bottom and to admire it and to be honest about the fact he admired. I mean, his book, that book was really harshly criticised by many people who just thought David Thompson is somehow being embarrassing here. And I just thought it was brilliant and fantastic that he was I just felt people missed the point entirely of what he was doing, which was trying to lay bare, this is what it is to be a habitual cinema goer. And this is what it is to have a relationship with a movie star as someone in the audience. Whereas I think the Paul Newman book and my review of it, the subject is more, what does it feel like from the inside? And there's some really interesting quote he had, which I'm now going to mangle but which I quote towards the end of the piece, where he's kind of thinking about what does it feel like? You think you're projecting a certain light outwards, but what if the people receiving that light get something completely different? And it it must have been so strange. I mean, there's lots of things in the book about how he hated his being reduced to a pair of blue eyes, even though at the same time, you know, that was what made him millions. And there's some bit where he sort of says, you you work really hard at your craft, you think you're getting a bit better, you think your acting's improving, and then someone just comes up to you and says, take off your sunglasses and let me see your blue eyes. And it's, I suppose, in response to your question, I mean, what's quite startling about reading that is we are so used to hearing about women being treated exactly like that, just being reduced to their bodies. And somehow with men in Hollywood, the story hasn't been so much about them being objectified like that. So what's interesting is not that a film star should be objectified, but that it's hearing about it from a male perspective does give it a different twist. So we've talked about Paul Newman's beauty and his slight passivity or his feeling of slightly sort of being distant from the from the audience or very still, and also his clearly quite deep insecurity about how he was coming across and whether he was actually succeeding as an actor. And I think that 
well, especially with David Thompson, you, you've touched on moments where people have actually not been that impressed with Paul Newman's acting. Do you, do you think he's a good actor? I mean, he didn't think he was that good an actor himself. He describes being in the actor's studio, you know, the legendary place in New York, which presided over by Lee Strasberg, who came up with The Method, and the people there like James Dean and Marlon Brando, and some guy just shouting at him saying, you know, you think you're acting anger and you're just yelling. And then not that long after that, he got a big break on Broadway. He was directed by the director, Ilya Kazan, in a... Tennessee Williams play, I think it was. And he was really required to emote. And he thought, but I just can't do this. Like he, so in a way, what's what I like about the book is he's so self-lacerating and self-aware about his limitations as an actor. And he realised he could only make himself cry. He was very sensitive to light. If he could stare for a long time at this light at the back of the theatre. And then Kazan got wise to this and just switched that light off. <laughs> Luckily for him, it kind of worked in that he was so angry at Kazan having done this that he cried anyway out of sheer rage. But I find it really, there are lots of stories like this in the book where you think, how funny to be an actor and sort of feel that you're not good at it. But it's, maybe it comes down to the original thing we were discussing about the passivity, that you would think that staying still as a statue would be much easier than giving a full vivacious, animated performance. But it seems to have been really hard. The Butch Cassidy director said before most of the scenes, Robert Redford would just want to get on and do it. And Paul Newman would discuss it, consider it from every angle, delay the shoot, think about motivations. And then the cameras would roll and what he would do would have absolutely no relation to that. And it's a sort of funny example of someone who was utterly praised and lauded by the world for things that he didn't think was important, were important. And then the thing that he did think which was important was acting and wasn't that good at it, but it sort of didn't matter in some way. And having said he wasn't that good at it, it's actually really unfair. He's a much better actor than I will ever be. (laughs) Most people in the world will ever be. But I think he he really responded to particular kinds of direction. And there were these two anecdotes in the book, one involving the Cool Hand Luke director and one involving Sidney Lumet, who did the verdict. And I said at the beginning, I think those are probably his two best performances. And in both instances, they kind of took him to one side and sort of forced a different performance out of him. So the Lumet one, I was really struck by. I think already old Newman is slightly different from young Newman. And it's partly you feel he's kind of relieved not to be so handsome anymore. So he can be something else. He seems much more comfortable in his own skin. I really love lots of his performances in his later movies. But in that one, he plays this cynical, alcoholic, ambulance-chasing lawyer. It's a really good part. Um, And he plays it brilliantly. But apparently the first week or so wasn't going so well. Lumet took him quietly to one side and said, you know, you know what the problem is, Paul? And he said, yes, the fucking lines. And he said, no, Paul, it's not the lines. It's you. When are you going to actually decide how much of yourself you're going to bring to this? And apparently he turned up on Monday morning as just a different person. So in a way that makes you think maybe all those other directors just didn't expect that much of him except to be a pair of blue eyes. Like his mother. Like his mother. Like his mother. And you do feel for him on that, that his mother would alternately praise him for being pretty and hit him with a hairbrush when he didn't please her. 
And so there's a kind of, there is a deep sadness in the book that you feel there's something very wrong at the core of what propelled him to being one of the most successful movie stars of all time. At the same time as which there is a great pleasure to be had at staring at those beautiful blue eyes, which, I mean, it's, even though it makes me feel a bit guilty now, because I know he wasn't enjoying us staring at him. Mm. But at the same time, you know, it was his career and... I suppose that's kind of the paradox of going to the cinema, isn't it? That you you enjoy watching people who are good looking, even though you might feel a bit guilty about it. You do. I mean, that's, that's the whole thing. And it's it's weird, but it gives us an immense payoff. I mean, I said another thing about that the smile for a camera is a smile that's completely without mirth. I thought that was interesting, that he almost felt... He found it so mad when he and Joanne were standing on the red carpet receiving all of these accolades and hundreds of light bulbs in their faces that he almost wished he could start every day like that, like a king or queen, just to sort of get it out of his system. And he almost wished that he kind of never had to do it at all. Oh, well. But just to finish off, um, tell us about the Paul Newman salad dressings. I mean, this is so bizarre because with other people, this could be an entire career unto itself. But with him, somehow it's just this one little sideline where he apparently just kind of made dinner for his kids most nights and made very ordinary American food, hamburgers, steaks, things like that. But he'd always have a salad on the side and he was quite proud of his salad dressings. And there was some day he had a friend over and they just whisked up some huge vat of salad dressing and then we're just kind of taking it around to other people in the neighbourhood and people are like, oh, this is great salad dressing. You should bottle this. And somehow, being Paul Newman, he did and then turned it into this huge multi-million dollar business, all of the profits going to charity. It's really, really strange. I'm kind of baffled by the salad dressing thing. And what is it about Paul Newman's face on the label that somehow worked? (laughs) It actually makes a lot of sense to me because I think that it's slightly, I don't want to make too much of the salad dressing, but I almost feel as if it slightly pulls together a few of the threads that we've been talking about. Because this idea of him cooking these kind of traditional American meals is a perfect combination to me of his like slight vulnerability where he's able to slightly access his his domestic side. And I think there is something extremely domestic about his relationship with Woodward that he constantly was also trying to show off how domestic they were and how happy they were together in their house with their kids. But at the same time, it's sort of slightly rugged because it's sort of steaks and hamburgers are these meaty things. So the salad dressings are kind of explicitly on the side of a kind of big hearty meal. It's also entrepreneurial. I mean, I, yeah. I look at the salad dressings and think in a way it's, I mean, this is I'm being a bit Freudian and over analytical here, but in a way, it exemplifies his relationship with both his parents. Like the idea of these casual meals where you're just whipping up a meatloaf and some salad on the side is the antithesis of the kind of meals he had to endure from his mother, Tress, who tormented him and his brother by forcing them to sit at a very formal table with linen tablecloths. They had to raise their glass of water and chink their glasses each night in order to fulfil her dream of domestic perfection. So the salad dressing is like, no, this is a kind of 1980s vibe of we're being casual, we're being cool. We're buying bottled salad dressing. We're buying bottled salad dressing. We're being very convenient. But it made 
millions and millions of dollars. And okay, he didn't put that in his own bank account because he had enough already. But he did say that the only time that he could ever get his father's approval was when he made money. So in a way, it goes back to being this kid that sort of should have worked in the sporting goods store and was doing every kind of job after school that he could get, working for the florist, working for the local deli, I think, being a delivery boy. And his father died age 53, so he kind of never got a chance to impress his father with his fame. So maybe in a funny kind of way, it's like saying, Dad, I could do this too. I don't know. There's something so playful about it, kind of so childish almost, that he kind of, he just has this idea, whips up a massive vat of salad dressing, takes it around the neighbourhood. Like, it, I, I really see what you mean. It is such a kind of return to his suburban roots in a way. And it, and it just was such a success. I mean, it is a sign of how loved he clearly was and still is in America that, I mean, not anyone's face on a bottle of salad dressing would convince them that I need to get this bottle of pre-made, not particularly delicious Caesar dressing rather than another. It's Paul Newman. Have you ever, have you ever tried a Paul Newman salad dressing? I have tried. I have a friend who lives in the States and I tasted it years ago and she was kind of saying, oh, this is a really superior salad dressing. But I'm just, a, I, I like cooking. I like just mixing together oil and vinegar and that's my idea of salad dressing. So I'm not the target audience. It may be that compared to other bottled salad dressings, it tastes much nicer. To me, it was just kind of a bit synthetic tasting. Is mm. it fair to say that? Sorry, Paul. Sorry, the memory <laughs> of Paul. Well, B, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. You can find B's review of Paul Newman, The Extraordinary Life of an Ordinary Man and The Last Movie Stars in the latest issue, which is online now. If you would like to share your thoughts about this episode, Paul Newman's blue eyes or anything else, you can email podcasts at lrb.co.uk. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne and the music is by Kieran Brunt. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.